if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, I want to encourage you to get into the habit of bringing your Bibles to church. And I know we've got screens and that kind of things on our phone, but for me, there's just nothing like filling the pages and hearing them rustle when we open them. But whether you have a Bible on your app or in your lap, join me in Matthew chapter number 5. That's where we'll be this morning. If you're a guest here with us again, we've been preaching together through the Beatitudes The attitudes that should be. These are the introduction to the greatest sermon that has ever been preached. And I'm not talking about the one I'm about to preach. I'm talking about the one Jesus preached called the Sermon on the Mount. And these attitudes that should be mark the introduction to that sermon. They arrest the attention of the hearers right off the bat. And there have been a couple of reoccurring themes that we've noticed as we've worked through the first few Beatitudes together. One is a word. Blessed or blessed, makarios, makarios. Each of these Beatitudes begin with this word. Again, we said last week, and we're going to reiterate this over and over again, the greatest sermon that has ever been preached or ever will be preached, it began with this word, blessed. So evidently, our Lord cares about our state of mind. He cares about our state of living. He desires that we live blessed, makarios lives, happy lives. It's okay. Everybody look this way just for a moment. It's okay to be happy. You don't have to feel guilty about being happy. You don't have to feel uh, if someone else is not as happy or blessed as you are in life. You don't, you don't have to feel ashamed of, of happiness. Jesus said, I've come not that you just might have life, but you might. The Lord wants us to be blessed. That's been a reoccurring theme. Another reoccurring theme we found with each of these Beatitudes, and we're going to find with the rest of them going forward, is there seemed to be, at least for the original hearers and to some extent for us as well, there seems to be a a little bit of a contradiction that takes place with each of them. We don't typically put the word blessed and the word hungry together. We don't typically put blessed and mourning together. We don't don't pair these things. It seems as though these these are... terms that contradict one another and this would be strange to the original hearers but they're they're also strange to us well this morning's no different and it's no different at all for the original hearers of this message gathered there on the mountain as Jesus taught this sermon when Jesus speaks what we're going to be learning about today there would have been audible gasp from the congregation there would have been some head scratching there would have been some jaws dropped now it's not so much the same with us listen to what jesus said in matthew chapter 5 verse number 7 blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy let's recite that together blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy now i didn't hear any audible gasp from our congregation I didn't see anybody scratching your head. I didn't see any jaws drop. But that certainly would have been the case for the original hearer. When we hear these words, blessed and merciful, they don't contradict one another, not in our understanding of what mercy is, because we see mercy as an incredibly lovely word. It's a beautiful word. I would contend, actually, that call someone mercy, and you've given them the greatest compliment that could be given. When you call someone merciful, you're saying of that person, they are kind, and they are tender, they're compassionate, they're caring, they're selfless, they're forgiving. I, I don't know of a greater compliment that could give, you could give anyone than to call them merciful, the opposite of merciful. 
the opposite of merciful is maybe one of the worst things that you could call someone. To call someone unmerciful, man, that's, that's a shot. We reserve that word unmerciful for dictators, for terrorists, for tyrants, for murderers. To say that someone is unmerciful is to say that person is cruel. That person is vicious. That person is evil. So, so our understanding of mercy doesn't lead us to say, well, these things don't go together. Blessing of merciful. We, we pair those things together. Sermon preached. This would have been the maybe the strangest of all of the Beatitudes because of how mercy was viewed in that day, both by Roman and by Jewish culture. The Roman culture that dominated the landscape in Jesus' day in the first century, when, when Jesus preaches this sermon and when it's read and heard for the first time, the Roman culture, culture that dominated the landscape viewed mercy as the most glaring of weaknesses that anyone could possibly have. To, to designate someone as merciful, to label someone as merciful, was to say that that person is weak, that person is impotent, that person is a, a coward. The noted Roman philosopher Seneca, who was a contemporary of Jesus, living during Jesus' time, said this about mercy. Mercy is a disease of the soul. That's the way the Romans viewed mercy. To give you some perspective on how they viewed mercy, when a child was born, the father reserved a legal right. It was, it was called the power of a father. He would stand at the bedside of his wife who's just given birth, would examine that child. If that child was viewed as abnormal, if that child was viewed as too small, if that child was a gender that the husband or the man wasn't wanting, he could just put his thumbs down and the child would be immediately drowned. Thumbs up, the child would live. Again, Seneca, this is a noted philosopher who lived during this time. Here's what he wrote about this. We drown even children who were at birth weakly and abnormal. Mercy was a foreign concept to the Romans. If a Roman citizen decided that he, he has made all the use of his slave that he is going to use and, and he doesn't want it anymore, that, that Roman citizen could take his dagger from his cloak, he could slit the throat of that slave right on Main Street that, that slave could die, and there was no recourse whatsoever. There were no repercussions. Mercy was not existent in the Roman world. It was an alien concept. They were all about strength and power and domination. They viewed mercy as a flaw, not a virtue. So for the Romans, the idea, even the idea of mercy was disgusting. It would turn their stomach. But you might say, well, in the audience that day when Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, weren't, weren't the audience predominantly Jewish? Yes. Jews who had obviously been influenced by Roman, Greco culture during that time. But just take away Roman culture in and of itself, and you would find that though mercy was extolled in by the Jewish culture, for the Jews of Jesus' day, there was a glaring lack of mercy. Now, it wasn't that the Jews weren't called to mercy. It wasn't that they didn't talk openly about a need to show mercy. It wasn't, though, they didn't sit in synagogue services, after synagogue services, where the scribe or the Pharisee, a Sanhedrin would, or a rabbi would unroll the scroll, and he would read about the need to be merciful and how God was merciful. Everyone in that audience that day would have been familiar with things like Micah chapter 6, Verse 8, he has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? Think about it. 
to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Even the Talmud. The Talmud was a collection of uh, historical rabbinical writings that that the Jews had elevated to uh, the same place as the Old Testament. Even the Talmud spoke openly of, of the need to be merciful and to show mercy. Gamaliel, who, uh, who, he, was, he discipled the Apostle Paul before his conversion. He was a Pharisee. He, he was a reputable, reputable man. Gamaliel spoke openly of mercy. Here's what Gamaliel wrote. Whenever thou hast mercy, God shall have mercy on thee. And Gamaliel didn't just say this. He actually put money where his mouth was. He encouraged his fellow Pharisees in Acts chapter 5 when the apostles had been arrested. He encouraged his fellow Pharisees to be lenient, to show mercy to those apostles. But Gamaliel was the exception in Judaism. He most certainly wasn't the rule. Jesus addressed this time and time and time again as he spoke to the Jews the parable of the Good Samaritan, remember that? A man fell among thieves, he fell among robbers as he was on the road. They, they left him to die after beating them. And it wasn't, it wasn't the, the priest, the Jewish priest who passed by and sh- had mercy. It wasn't the Levite who passed by and had shown mercy. It was the Samaritan. It was the Samaritan. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus goes into the home of a Pharisee and there's a woman there. The Pharisee there doesn't even care enough about the woman to ask her what her name was. Certainly doesn't invite her to a place at the table. But our Lord, Jesus, shows great mercy to this woman in Luke chapter 7. To the Pharisees, the leaders of Judaism, here's what Jesus says to them in Matthew 23, 23. Woe unto you. Scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, but have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy. Everything right on the outside, but the inside is vile. It's nasty. It's it's ungodly. These were the leaders of Judaism. So, So mercy was not virtuous in the eyes of the Romans, but it certainly wasn't practiced in the lives of the Jews. And in fact, it was a combination of these two merciless systems, the Roman government and the, the Judaic religious system that united, strangely enough, in order to kill the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's how mercy is viewed in the context of what we're looking at today. It, it was viewed as disgusting by the Romans, and it was not practiced by the Jews. Yet Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, blessed are the merciful. Again, jaws would have dropped with a statement like that. What does Jesus mean by this? What does Jesus mean when he says, blessed are the merciful? For they shall obtain mercy. And how do we apply that to our lives? If you're taking notes this morning, the first thing I want to highlight for us today is mercy represented. Mercy is represented. If we really want to know what mercy looks like, we have to look no further than the Lord Jesus Christ. We see mercy in his character. Psalm 145, 9, the Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he's made. We see mercy in the actions of our Lord Jesus. In Psalm 103, verse number 8, the Lord is compassionate, and he's merciful. He's very patient and full of faithful love. We see mercy in his compassion. One of, the, one of the interesting passages dealing with mercy is actually found in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews 4, we're told that we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us. 
That's a blessing, y'all. We don't have a high priest in Jesus who is unable to sympathize with us. The word mercy, underline it there in Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. It's only used one other time. This particular specific word is only used one other time in the entirety of the New Testament. The word mercy is seen all throughout, but it's a different word than used here in Matthew 5, 7. The only other time it's used is to describe this sympathetic high priest that we have. It's found actually in Hebrews as well, chapter 2, verse number 17, in describing our high priest Jesus. The Bible says, therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren that he might be merciful. Same word. The only other time that this word in Matthew 5, 7 is used is used here. That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. This particular word used in Matthew 5, 7, and he described this way, to get in someone's skin. We would use a term like this. We, we would describe it this way, to walk a mile in, in his shoes. That's what this word in Matthew 5, 7, in Hebrews 2, 17, is speaking of. To walk a mile in his shoes. What that means is to feel what they feel. To struggle alongside. To see things from another's perspective. In the incarnation of Jesus Christ and his coming, his putting on skin, his dwelling among us, we see his mercy. He's able to sympathize with us. What this means for us, and this is why it's such a blessing. What this means for us is that Jesus, our priest, knows what it's like to hurt. He knows our heartaches. He knows what it's like to be lonely. He, he knows what it's like to be betrayed by friends, to be deserted by people that we love. He knows what it's like to be falsely accused, to be slandered, to be treated harshly, to be, be treated unjustly. Jesus knows what it's like to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And because of that, He is merciful. He's merciful for you and He's merciful for me. But we also see His mercy in salvation. The mercy of God is most clearly demonstrated, most clearly seen in the promise of salvation for all who would call upon the name of the Lord. The cross of Christ is a blood-stained image of the matchless mercy of our God. As we've already unpacked in this series, and Matthew just said this a few moments ago in his prayer, we're spiritually bankrupt. We've already unpacked that. We have nothing in and of ourselves that would commend us to God. There's nothing that we might do, nothing that we might say that would render us deserving of heaven. In fact, we're all, and I say all, and, and this is, let me give you the Greek on the word all. All means all you, me, everyone within the sound of my voice, outside of these walls, all of us. Here's what we are deserving of. Wrath, death, hell. That's what we deserve. That's what we deserve. Luke 7, 178 says this though, through the tender mercy of our God with which the day spring from on high has visited us, that's Jesus, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. We deserve death, but God. But God. When Paul the Apostle is writing verses of chapter number 2 of their sinful state apart from Christ and the just consequences of that sinful state. Here's what he writes. The, the sweetest two words in scriptures in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 4 and 5. But God. 
Paul writes, this is who you were. This is what you deserved. But God, who is rich in... (laughs) We seem to have a theme, don't we? But this God who who is rich in mercy because of His great love for us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By His grace, you've been saved. That's a great place for an amen. But God, because of His mercy, throughout the narrative of Scripture, we see the matchless mercy of God on brilliant display, whether it's Adam and Eve who have rebelled against this great Creator, clothed in animal skins. This is just a picture of the mercy of God. We, we see the Ninevites, sworn enemies of, of God, sworn enemies of Israel. They're not, they're not wiped off the face of the map. Jonah says, here's the reason, because of the mercy of God. Whether we're looking at the soldiers at the foot of the cross, whom Jesus, they do, or the woman at the well who deserved damnation and found forgiveness, or whether we're talking today about Jesus looking out over Jerusalem who had despised them, rejected them, and weeping over them, feeling compassion because of His great mercy. Whether we're talking about our own story, we're talking about the mercy of God. The only reason I have any hope of salvation is the mercy of God. Let me go a step further. The only reason that I could draw my next breath is by the mercy of God. We see it in ourselves. The promise. I, I can, my, my wife, uh, she's gone now, my oldest daughter as well. Her grandfather's dying. So they called the family in, so they're all in Georgia um, waiting on, on that to take place. And it's, it's, it's always a different. Here's what I have as a believer. As, as not because of anything that I've done, but because of Jesus who is in me. I have no fear of death. No fear. How is that possible? It's mercy. I have no fear of it because here's what, as a believer, here's what I could say with the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 57, 5 through 57. Oh, death, where is thy victory? Oh, death, where is thy sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is in the law, but thanks be to God who giveth victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is the gain of sin, but it's the mercy of God that removes the pain of sin. We see it in our own story. So yesterday, today, and forevermore, we have mercy represented in the Lord our God. But, but not only do we see mercy represented, we have mercy received. Again, Jesus is and will always be the most merciful man who has ever walked the face of the earth. When Jesus saw the sick, he healed them. When he saw the blind, he restored their sight. When, when he was there at the city gates and those with leprosy that nobody owned is someone who would dine with sinners and tax collectors. Why? Because he's merciful. When Jesus found an outcast, he would make sure they had a seat at the table. He picked up the sorrowing. He ensured that the lonely felt loved. He gave hope to the hopeless. His life was one of consistent mercy. And just as Zacchaeus found the mercy of God, or the woman with the issue of blood found the mercy of God, or the man dwelling among tombs found the mercy of God, you and I are recipients of the mercy. Well, I don't know if I have or not. You have received it with His patience. God is patient with us. Praise His name for that. The Bible says in Lamentations chapter 3, Verses 22 and 23, Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, he's looking out over Israel 
and, and how they rebelled time and time and time again over Israel. This weeping prophet says this, though, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. He's patient with us. Not only with us who know him, he's patient with those who don't know him yet. Matter of fact, that's why they have any semblance of hope whatsoever. The great critic of Christianity and Bible, Robert Ingersoll, he drew massive crowds from all over the world to hear him rail against the Bible in lecture after lecture after lecture. He was given a lecture once. He went on this diatribe against a particular man that was there in the crowd that day who had told Ingersoll he had placed his faith in Jesus and he believed the Bible. Robert Ingersoll did this. He removed his pocket watch. He held it up. He said, I've said about your God what I have said about your God, but I'm going to give him a chance to prove that he's real. He started his pocket watch. He said, God, I'm going to give you five minutes. If you're real, wipe me out. The crowd was stunned. Some people left. Their nerves were unable to tolerate the, the, the tension that was being felt in that moment. As quiet as this great crowd was, you could almost hear the seconds tick. And Ingersoll said, see, you fools, I told you. He put it back in his pocket. One young man in the crowd that day stood up and said this. You have proven something. Beyond a shadow of a doubt, Mr. Ingersoll, you have proven that God is merciful even to the most wicked of men. God is patient. And we see mercy in the patience of God. We see the mercy. We're recipients of mercy through His kindness towards us. Listen to Titus 3, 4, and 6. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared... He saved us, listen, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His, to his mercy. He is kind to us. His, his mercy is demonstrated in kindness. His mercy is demonstrated in promises that He made us. One in particular, Hebrews 4.16, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we might obtain mercy and find grace in our help of need. Praise God for the mercy that we have and continue to receive. So we find mercy is represented, mercy is received, but here's where things get difficult. Mercy is to be reflected. This is where the rubber meets the road in relation to our text. This is where things, things get tough, and I say that for this reason. It is not hard, it's not difficult for us to, to worship God for the mercy that is in His character. And we should, by the way. It is not difficult for us to praise God in gratitude as we think about the mercy that we've received, which we should, by the way. It's, it's not hard for me to stand up and preach a sermon on how, how merciful God is or how thankful I am that God has extended His mercy to me. I could do that all day long, twice on Sunday. As a matter of fact, I probably will today. I've got two funerals after I leave here. That's why I have a tie on, you know. I should have wore two. I've got two funerals. But that's not what the text is talking about. Those things should happen, but that's not what the text is saying here. What the text is telling us here is an action. Blessed are those who are merciful. 
Those who extend mercy, those who reflect mercy, those who show mercy. And, and this is difficult because it's not natural. It is not the natural inclination of my flesh, nor is it the natural inclination of yours to extend kindness, to extend compassion, to extend forgiveness, to extend mercy to our enemies. In, in fact, it's an assault, it's an pain, or I'm to extend mercy to anyone else. It's going to be a choice that I make, an intentional decision that I make. It will never happen on its own. It won't just happen. It's something that I have to do. Okay, so, so the text is not blessed are those who acknowledge that God is merciful or acknowledge that God has been merciful to them. But, but blessed are those who are merciful, who, who show mercy. It, this is a personal responsibility. Blessed are the merciful. Now, this, of course, is not an isolated text. We can go passage after passage. Uh, Luke 6, 36, be merciful as your Father is also merciful. And by the way, we're going to give an account here. You'll remember uh, Luke chapter number 12 teaches that from whom much is given, much more is required. Matthew chapter 10 teaches that freely we have received, freely we should give. We'll give an account here of how we show mercy. So how do we do that? We extend patience. We've been shown patience. We extend patience. You all have somebody in your life. And I do too. And some of you are going to look at me right now and you say, well, not me. You too. A brother or sister in Christ. We're all friends. I'm going to talk like friends who grate on your ever-loving nerves. Please don't look at them right now. But man, they just, when you see them at Walmart, you duck behind the toothpaste aisle just to keep from having a deal. We all have them. It's a reality. We all have them. Listen to what the Bible teaches about that. Ephesians 4, 2, be patient with one another. Make an allowance for each other's faults because of your love. When we extend mercy, we're extending patience with other brothers and sisters in Christ. When we extend kindness, we're extending the mercy of God. Listen to what Romans 2, 4 teaches us. The kindness of the Lord leads to repentance. I shouldn't have to say this, but I'm going to go with it. I, feel, I figure I'm going to be charged for it anyway because I'm thinking it. Might as well get it out there. You'll never argue anyone into the kingdom of God. This, I'm going to go a step further. Y'all ready? Even on Facebook. You're never going to argue anyone into the kingdom of God. Listen to what the Bible teaches. The kindness of the Lord is what leads to repentance. The kindness of the Lord. When we extend kindness to others, it's a door of the gospel that opens up. We can share the truth of God's word, the kindness of the Lord. So when we, we extend kindness, we're extending mercy. When we extend compassion, we're extending mercy. Clothe yourself with compassion, with kindness, with humility, with gentleness, with patience. And here's the kicker. Not only are we to extend patience and kindness and compassion, we're to do so, listen, without gritting our teeth. You say, what did you come up with that? I didn't. The Scriptures do. Romans 12, 6 through 8, listen carefully. We all have different gifts according to the grace given to each one of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy according to your faith. If it's serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's encouragement, then encourage. If it's giving, then give generously. If it's to lead, then do it diligently. Listen, if it's to show mercy, not, not gritting your teeth, we're to show mercy cheerfully. 
Mercy is reflected in what we withhold. When we withhold unrighteous judgment, we're showing mercy. Later on in the Sermon on the Mount, I promise I'm almost finished. This is rich, though. Jesus said something really compelling, Matthew 7, 1 through 5. He said, judge not lest you be judged. Probably the most, probably the most quoted verse of Scripture in our context today. And, and probably the most misinterpreted passage of Scripture in our context today. With, with that same judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you used, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye and not consider the plank in your own? How can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look, a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite! First remove the plank from your own eye and then you can see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. What the Bible is teaching us here is we're not to judge anyone by our own standards. That's self-righteous judgment. That's what the Pharisees did. They weren't judging by the word of the Lord. They were judging by their own preconceived notions, their preferences, their standards. We're not to judge in that way. That's unrighteous judgment. The Bible is not telling us that, that we're not to judge. In fact, the Scriptures teach us we're to judge all things according to the Spirit, according to the Word of God. Listen carefully. In our culture, it needs to be noted, it is never wrong to call wrong wrong when God calls it wrong. If God says it's a sin, yesterday, today, and forevermore, it will be a sin. If God says it's good, yesterday, today, and forevermore, it will always be good. We're not told here to put our heads in the sand. What we're told here is we're not to judge according to our standards. We judge according to the Word of God. But when we withhold this unrighteous judgment, we're with extending mercy, spiritual snobbery. We withhold spiritual snobbery. We're extending the mercy of God. Jesus tells a story. It's a parable in Luke 18. He says, two men go to the temple and pray. One's a Pharisee, the other's a tax collector. The Pharisee, not like him. That's his prayer. Thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give all tithes that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, Be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For he, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. When we, when we withhold spiritual snobbery, that's looking down our noses at anyone, we're extending the mercy of God. And we withhold personal vengeance. We're extending the mercy of God. Romans 12, 19, vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. It's not upon us. We're to extend forgiveness when we've been hurt. I heard a story about a little boy. His mom was getting him ready for church one Sunday morning. And she told him, you can go outside and play, but you can't get dirty. You ever told a little boy, you can't get dirty? As soon as he got outside, he decided to test his abilities. He saw a big mud puddle and he said, I can leap over that mud puddle in my church clothes. He leapt, and he's like me, he didn't make it. Landed slap in the middle of it, came up covered from head to toe with mud, ripped his blue jeans. Knew he was in deep trouble because he remembered how his mama said that. You know, when it's your mama, it's not just what she says, that you know it's, it's how she says it. He knew things were going to be bad for him. He took a sheet of paper and he wrote, I am so sorry. And he slid it under her closed bedroom door. 
The mother saw the sheet of paper, saw the words, I am sorry, written on that sheet of paper. Saw the mud-printy hands. <laughs> Knew exactly what had happened. Got furious, but then had a moment of motherly mercy come over her. And took a red pen and over his words wrote something and slid it back under the door. The little boy picked it up and these words were written, You are forgiven. He flung the door open, wrapped himself around his mother's <laughs> legs. Why? Because he had been shown mercy. Dear brother, dear, we must extend it to others. We must forgive. We must forgive. Because, lastly, mercy gets rebounded. As with each of these beatitudes we studied, there's, there's always a premise and a promise. We have here a, a promise. Shall obtain mercy. The premise, if we're merciful. The danger here is to see this as a human platitude. The danger is to read this and, and make it say things like, well, this means if, if I'm just always good to people, people will always be good to me. You want to bet? Really? You want to bet? Jesus was the most merciful man who ever walked the face of the earth. He extended kindness and mercy and grace and goodness and compassion to everyone, including the people who bitterly and passionately hated him. Did they extend kindness in return? Mercy in return? Compassion or goodness in return? What, what did he get in return? This is not a promise that here in this life, if I'm just, if I, if I say, if I use my manners around people, they'll be really nice to me in return. If, if, I, if I lend, then, then somebody's going to lend back. That's, that's not what we're reading in this text. What does it mean that the merciful will obtain mercy? Here's what it means, and I'm finished. It's not speaking of God's salvation. Those who are in Christ have already been saved. God's gift of eternal life can never be withdrawn. We praise God for that. What this is talking about is Christians who act unmercifully. They risk cutting themselves off from God's blessing of mercy in this life and God's merciful rewards in the next. Those who show mercy, great mercy, will continue to be shown. Would you bow with me? Our musicians are going to come and we're going to sing together. As they prepare to come, would you bow your heads and hearts with me and Deal with these simple questions. Have you received the mercy of God? Again, you're deserving of death, hell, wrath. Because we've all sinned and fallen short of His glory. But God demonstrated His love for you. And that while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. To extend your, His mercy to you so that you can have eternal life. Not anything that you've done. The Bible says if you repent of your sins and you will trust Jesus alone, He will save you, give you a new heart. You can do that today. Or, or maybe you're in Christ. You know Him. But if you're being real honest, there's some bitterness you're harboring. Something that has happened in your own life. 
I'm not discounting the pain that comes from that. I'm not discounting the heartache that can flow from that. When someone sins against us, it's difficult. But to whom much is given, much more is required. You have received the mercy of God. Maybe today you need to say, Lord, help me to extend the mercy that I have received to others. It's going to be open. You can come and pray. You can pray at your seat, whatever the case might be. But let's respond to the word of the Lord today. Maybe today you have not been baptized. You need to follow through in believer's baptism. That's today. Make that decision. Whatever the case is, salvation or surrender. It's Father, in Jesus' name, this is your time of invitation. We won't manipulate it. We trust you. Do what you do, what we cannot. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand?